I just took the philosophy that I was going to stick to whatever I was preaching through and let the Lord fashion that for whatever particular occasion we found ourselves. And today is no exception to that rule. I want you to find your place with me in John's Gospel chapter number 6. Uh, we started several weeks ago preaching through the seven signs in John's Gospel. John orders his gospel around seven miraculous signs. And we have said that a sign is something that points us to someone greater than the sign itself. So we are never intended to sit down and just feast upon the sign or the miracle, but look to the one who performed it, the one to whom the sign presents and reveals as the Lord of all, and that is Jesus Christ. Now certainly in John's gospel he makes reference to a whole lot more miracles than he records. John just chooses these seven out of all, of, all that Jesus did to kind of communicate his theological purpose and to organize his message of his gospel around these seven signs. So today we come to sign number four which he records for us. It's a uh, Quite a popular passage of scripture. We have all read it. We've all studied it. We've all listened to it. We have heard it since we were very young and it's very familiar. But let's look at it today and see what we can glean from it as we stand on the precipice of a brand new year, 2021. Beginning in verse number 1 of John's Gospel, chapter number 6. John records this. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. And a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Now remember, several weeks ago we talked about three different kinds of faith. And here we see one level of faith. People who are following Jesus not because of who he is but they're following him because they were seeing miracles. And that type of faith is better than no faith at all, but that type of faith will usually put you in a hard predicament because you always need one more miracle to feed your faith. Something more spectacular to keep you going. When really we ought to be enamored with only the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's performing the miracles. So let's pick back up. You see why this crowd is following him. They have been watching him and seeing these signs. So they're spectators, more or less. Verse number 3, Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him. That is, Jesus was testing Philip. For Jesus himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive even a little. One of his disciples, that is one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, that is Jesus, there is a lad here, who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. 
Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten, by those, get this, who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. One thing that is a constant source of wonderment and amazement to me that just kind of tickles my mind from many different aspects is the absolute precision which God has built into the created universe. I mean, there's no way this thing could operate without the precision with which God built into it. I mean, I sometimes stop and think, you know, those who are a whole lot more intelligent than me, than me that have degrees in physics, they deny things like perpetual motion. But have you ever stopped to think that ever since God spoke this universe, and more particularly our solar system and this planet into existence, this old world has been doing precisely what God instructed it to do for over 6,000 years, ever since the very first day. Now what that means is, when God told it to come into being and He set it into motion, it has been perpetually going. You stop and think, this globe upon which we live spins at the exact same rate it did today as it did on day one. Have you ever noticed that a day is not getting longer. We don't have 24 hours in this day and 24 hour and one second tomorrow or, or, or anything less. It's precise. And here's what scientists tell us. They say if it was not precise, it would not be the ecosphere that we have that would sustain human life for an indefinite period of time. This whole thing is tilted just right at a certain angle on its axis. And they tell us if it was tilted one more degree this way or one more degree that way, part of the world would burn up under a scorching sun while the other part froze. And if the, the, the spinning wasn't exactly 24 hours, it would be just the same. It would cause famine. It would cause all sorts of things to make the globe basically uninhabitable. But not only that, it travels. Not only does it spin, but it travels around our star, the sun. And a year is exactly the same as it was when he told it to start its path. I mean, there's so much precision in this thing, and you take one of those elements out, and it all collapses. You see, there is no way that this thing could have just happened on its own. It didn't. It has behind it an intentional and purposeful designer who set it in motion. And by the way, you heard me say a little over 6,000 years ago, not millions of years ago, that's the evolutionary scientist's attempt to remove the Creator God from the picture. But you just can't do it. The precision screams out, this thing had an intelligent designer. 
What do we learn from all of that? Well, we learn that our God is a God of precision. He's a God of extreme detail. And if He's a God of that type of detail in the physical order, it's very easy to logically deduce that He has that same type of detail in the spiritual realm. And I, I think that is true. And a lot of times what the Lord is doing with us is, is, you know, not big adjustments. I mean, stop and think. When you were born again, you were very much like, let me give you, a, a, my friend Joe will appreciate this. When you go down to the gun shop and you buy you a brand new high-powered rifle and you tell him to put a scope on that thing, and the gun guy says, all right, I'll put a scope on it. And what he does is he takes it in the back and he does what's called bore sighting. And when you get that gun from him, you say, now how, how close is it going to be? And the last one I got, the guy after he bore sighted, he said, well, at 50 yards, you'll be able to hit the broad side of a barn. And you know, that's all you want. You want, to, you want to be able to see where your bullet's going. If I'm aiming here and it's shooting over there, why, that tells me where the bullet is. So what you do is you take that thing and you fine-tune it. You hone it in. You zero that rifle. And you can go from just hitting the broad side of the barn to hitting a target the size of a quarter consistently at 100 or 150 yards. That's fine-tuning that scope. And you say, I believe that's kind of what God does with us as His children. When you were born again, when you were justified, you were boresighted. You can hit the broad side of the barn as a baby Christian. You know what I'm saying? But now in this process of sanctification, daily living with God, He begins to fine-tune our faith. He begins to sharpen us. He begins to work on the details. He begins to bring precision to our walk with Him so that we are more accurate, not only in our understanding of Him, but more accurate in our obedience to Him. So I want to speak to you today on this subject. Fine-tuning Philip's faith. Because in this passage of Scripture, we see that of all the disciples, it was Philip whom Jesus called to the forefront. And what he was doing here is he was wanting to do something in Philip's life that would move him from being a boresighted believer into being a believer who is fine-tuned, who is zeroed in. And maybe that's what God is doing in your life. And I think in 2021 that should be our goal. You know, so many times we think, hey, I'm saved, that's good enough. I'm hitting the broad side of the barn at 20 steps. That's good enough for me, but it's not. Our God is a God of detail. And He wants to polish you. He wants to shine you. He wants to take you from being a lump of coal to being a sparkling, dazzling, finely cut diamond. So in 2021, why don't we just kind of take the goal of allowing God to make some adjustments in each of our lives. To let Him fine-tune us so that we can be a sharpshooter. So that we're not just boresighted, but we can be more precise than that. And you know, it may not be big things. I mean, you know, I've got confidence in you. Most of you that are, that are here today genuinely have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
you have been born again. You've been on this journey for quite a while. The worst thing we could do is get comfortable where we are. Let's allow God to fine-tune our faith just like he did Philip's. So although Philip is kind of forefront here in this passage tonight, let's not be too critical of him because to be honest with you, I see myself in old Phil. And the same things that the Lord was doing in Philip's life that day, I think he's doing in mine and he's doing in some of yours. So what was going on here in this passage of Scripture where Jesus fed miraculously? The Bible says there were 5,000 men. When you factor in women and children, no matter what that crowd was, it was certainly more than 5,000. Maybe double, maybe close to triple that. It was indeed a miracle. A lot of folks have tried to explain it away. As a matter of fact, I was in seminary class with a New Testament scholar. He sure enough was a, a bona fide New Testament scholar. And uh, there was a guy in our class who was a, how can I say, a completed Jew. He was a Jew who'd been born again and now he's in seminary. And as the professor was teaching on this passage, this guy raises his hand he says, Well, Doc, he says, um, I believe that Jesus could have fed as many people as he wanted to and did that day miraculously because he's the Son of God. He has that power. He said, but this is the way it's taught in Jewish circles. He said, really what happened is everybody had packed a little lunch, but everybody was kind of afraid to bring theirs out because they didn't want to share it with somebody who didn't have, may not have had some. And when this boy brought his lunch out, it just kind of inspired the rest of those folk to bring theirs out. And when everybody brought theirs out, they had more than enough. He said, that's what my Jewish friends say. He said, but I point out to them that that would be a greater miracle than Jesus miraculously feeding them. He said, because a Jew ain't going to share anything. <laughs> well, there you go. So he put a good spin on it. And him being a former uh, uh, Jew, he could say that and get away with it. So here we go. How was it that Jesus was fine-tuning Philip's faith? Well, three things I want to point out to you. Number one, he was fine-tuning Philip's faith by placing him in a seemingly impossible situation. I mean, it seemed impossible. And Philip says as much, Lord, 200 denarii, eight months of salary wouldn't be enough to give all these people just a tidbit is kind of what he says. He was testing Philip. Now, here's the dealio. Jesus is not like some of the professors that you have at the Baptist College of Florida. Because Jesus never tests over uncovered material. Are you following me? I mean, there are some professors that they'll put a question on there that he ain't even covered that chapter in the book. That comes in the next section. Jesus doesn't do that. When he tests, he tests over material that has already been abundantly covered and explained. So when he calls Philip up front, here's what Philip could have said, and he would have passed the test probably if he would have said this. Philip could have said, Lord, look at all these people. This is absolutely impossible. But I tell you what, Lord, I've been with you. I was with you down in Cana. And I saw you turn water into wine. 
And he said, then I was with you again down in Galilee when that nobleman came to you and his son was, was sick and about to die and you didn't even go down there. You just spoke the word and that boy was cured at a distance of nearly 16 miles. He said, I, seen, I have seen you walk by the pool in Jerusalem and take a man who has not been able to walk in 38 years and tell him, take up your pallet and walk. And he took up his pallet and walked. So I tell you, Lord Jesus, this is impossible for men, but what is impossible with men is possible with you. So I'm just going to stand here and watch what you do. Oh boy, Peter, uh, Philip would have passed with flying colors, but that's not what happened. So he flunked the test, but guess what? Pastor Richie flunks the test as well. Huh? We all flunk the test. So how is it that we can allow him to fine-tune our faith and be better students and stop making so many bad notes? Here we go. Notice why Philip failed the test. I think when we broaden our vision and look at the entire gospel, we can see why Philip, excuse me, not Peter, why Philip failed the test. He failed, number one, because he was mentally detached. Philip was mentally detached. Now let me show you what I mean here. Fan over with me in John's Gospel to chapter number 14. And, and, I, and I want to show you this in verse number 8 and 9. You can see it in the response of Jesus to what Philip said. And you know, I've, I've, I've got some prof friends that say there's no such thing as a, as a dumb question, but listen to me, that's a lie, there is. <laughs> huh? There is such thing... <laughs> That's a dumb question, and I think that's what Jesus wanted to say to Philip right here. Philip, that was the most boneheaded thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Check this out. They're, they're in the upper room, as you know. This is the night before the crucifixion, the day before the crucifixion. Look what Philip says in verse number 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So what am I saying to you? Why did Philip fail this test? I think it was because it was the pattern of Philip's life to be mentally detached. You know what that means? That means he just never paid attention in class. I've got some students like that. I'll lecture along two or three weeks and I notice they never take a note. <laughs> and it's no wonder they make an F when the test comes around. Because they were sitting in class scrolling through social media and doing everything else just mentally detached. I quoted in a, in a book not long ago uh, some researchers that found out that the attention span of the average adult is less than that of the attention span of a goldfish. <laughs> and there, yeah, there are actually researchers who got government grants to compare the attention span of a goldfish swimming in a bowl <laughs> to the attention span of whoever your average adult is. And guess what? The goldfish can pay attention longer than most adults. You know, they teach us that in seminary in preaching class. They say, guys, listen here. Don't you use any words that are above fifth grade vocabulary level and don't you preach more than 15 minutes because you ain't going to keep them that long. And I think, you know, that's fine, but it's my job to kind of pull people along a little bit. 
and I'm not going to dumb it down. I'm going to throw out a word every now and then, Mr. Moore, that I just make up just to see if you're sharp. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> just keep you on your P's and Q's. And I think that the Holy Spirit has the ability to rivet people's attention who normally can't keep pace with a goldfish. I think he can. So here's what I'm doing in 2021. I'm saying, God, would you help me be more mentally focused on things that matter? Would you help me pay attention? And I can't remember who it was. It may be Beth Moore or, or one, of the, one of these female authors and speakers that says, wherever you are, be all there. And can I say to you, that's a challenge for us in this day and age. One of the things that I try to do out of respect for people when I'm with them, if I go to lunch with somebody, I'll either leave this thing in my truck or put it in my pocket. Because it's hard not to be mentally detached when you've got this thing going off and buzzing. And one of the things that absolutely drives me crazy is when I'm having a conversation with somebody and they'll pull their phone over and go up and read an email while I'm talking to them. I want to say, wait! But you know what? That's exactly what we do to the Lord. We're mentally detached. We're not paying attention to what He's doing in our world, in our life, what He's saying in our Word. So when test time comes, it's like, wait a minute, have we covered this? I don't even remember hearing this. It's because like old Philip, we're mentally detached. So hey, one of the things that I want God to fine-tune me on this year is to help me be more focused. I don't want to miss a thing. God, if you say it, if you do it, I want to be on the front row taking notes so that I don't fail the test when the test comes because he does give tests. Notice number next. Why did Philip fail? Number one, he failed because he was mentally detached. Number two, I, I think he failed because he was financially distracted. When the Lord asked him, where can we buy food, what does he say? Where does his mind immediately go? Verse number seven. 200 denarii worth of bread. Isn't it enough to give everybody just a little bit? Man, Philip must have been a Baptist, huh? Because as soon as you start talking about ministry, the first thing he thinks about is where's the money going to come from? And they begin to look around think they have no money, so since we don't have no money, we're not going to do anything. You see, that's exactly what we do. We sometimes look at the need. And then we look at the need and see how great it is. And then we take an inventory of our resources. And we see that our resources aren't nearly sufficient, so instead of doing something because we don't have enough resources, we just do nothing. When actually, I think there's a contrast here between Philip, one of the disciples who'd been in the classroom of life, walking with the Son of God, and this little young lad who comes up and says, I don't have a lot, but whatever I have is yours, take it. Boy, there's a difference in the two, isn't there? And so many times we do the same thing. We look at the need and we think, God, I'm not equipped. I'm not prepared. I don't have enough. And we think that gives us an excuse to do nothing. When, hey, maybe in 2021 the Lord's saying, I want you to focus on me and not on what you have and what you don't have. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to just give me what you do have and let's see what takes place. And man, that's when things begin to happen. He fed who knows how many people 
with five barley loaves. It's significant that John, this is the only gospel, this is the only miracle, by the way, that's recorded in all four gospels. We get a little bit more information in all of them. John gives us this tidbit that nobody else gives us. They were five barley loaves. Now, what that means is they weren't made out of wheat, which is what most people ate, were made out of barley. That's what poor folk had. So this little boy came from a poor family. And here he was, stepped up and gave his five barley loaves and whatever it was, it's translated as fish, but it's not the normal word for fish. It could have been anything that just will go with bread, with barley bread. And he placed it in the hands of the Lord. And my goodness, look what, there was more left over than what the boy brought. Not counting all the people he fed. So how can we allow Jesus to fine-tune us in 2021? Allow Him to keep us mentally sharp. Not so tight, but focused on money. I don't know how else to say it. Ain't that right? And focus on Him and put what we've got in His hands and see what He does with it. Notice number next, Philip failed the test. Not only was he financially distracted, but I think because he was spiritually deficient. He was spiritually deficient. Every time Philip gets a chance to do something for the Lord, you know what he does? In the gospel, he deflects. He puts it off, it seems like. Let me show you this, John chapter 12. Here we are again. We're down to the final week of Jesus' life. And in John chapter 12, verse number 20, notice what happens. Verse number 20 of John chapter 12, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These men came to who? Here's our boy. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come. Wait a minute. Do you remember the very first miracle down in Cana? Jesus said, My hour hasn't come. There was something significant theologically in the coming of the Greeks seeking Jesus that signified to him that this was his hour. And who did they come to? They came to Philip. Philip had the opportunity to lead these men to Christ. But you know what Philip probably said? Probably said the same thing that a lot of us say. You know, I'm just not good at doing this. I've never shared my faith with anybody. I've never shared the gospel with any, anybody. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get Cliff. Because Cliff knows how to do this. When God has given us a grand opportunity to be the instrument that He uses to speak the life-giving word into somebody's heart. And Philip passed on it and he went and got Andrew, who we see throughout the Gospels was the perpetual evangelist in bringing folk to Jesus. He's identifying John chapter 6 as Peter's brother. Who was it that brought Peter to Jesus? Andrew. So here's how we allow the Lord to fine-tune our faith in 2021. Maybe it's evangelistically. Maybe it's our friends that have become curious about, man, what's different about you, Jamie Baker? I knew you before and something's happened and I can't just make it connect. The dots aren't lining up in my world. What happened to you? 
opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. Somebody you work with, somebody you live next to. Rather than calling a friend saying, Hey, I think this person needs to hear the gospel. Would you come and do it? Maybe we need to allow the Lord this year to fine-tune us a little bit evangelistically. Notice what next happens, and I think we can say that this is why Philip failed the test. Not only was he mentally detached, are y'all following me? Y'all tracking me on that? Not only was he financially distracted, not only was he spiritually deficient, but I think also he was personally defeated. Now, here's probably the reason why it is that Jesus pulls Philip to the front. He was fine-tuning his faith, and why? Well, because did you see what John just told us in John chapter 12? And as a matter of fact, if you look in John chapter 1, verse number 44, you see the same thing. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. And you know where they were? They were right there geographically. So you know what that tells me? That tells me that Philip was at home. Where this feeding took place was his old stomping grounds. It's where he used to run. And Jesus asked him because he knew every little bread shop, he knew every little corner market, he knew every resource in that area from childhood. He was well acquainted with it. It was his home turf. Can I say to you the easiest place to be defeated is at home? Can I say to you the most difficult place to be spiritual is at home? There's just something about being home that causes us, because of everything around us that's so familiar, we let our guard down. We're not on our P's and Q's. I can tell you it's true because I was a missionary, still am a missionary. And son, when I'm in another country, they don't speak my heart language. This is not my culture. I don't understand. i got to work to stay with them and what's going on. I want to tell you my spiritual antennas are up, and there's very little that I miss when I'm in the jungles of Brazil. The Spirit of God just sharpens me. And it has nothing to do with Him, but probably everything to do with me. Because when I'm home, I'm not that sharp. And could it be it's because I'm so familiar with my own country, my own culture, my own language, till I don't really pay attention like I ought to. And that'll cause you to be defeated. I want to tell you, it kills me when I'm defeated at home. Huh? Just like a football team. You watch these college and foot, NFL football teams, the greatest insult they can have is somebody coming into their house and monkey stomping them. You don't come into our house and meet us. But spiritually, that's what happens. Man, I'll tell you, it kills me inside. My wife doesn't even know sometimes what's wrong with me because I'll clam up. She thinks I'm mad at her, but I'm mad at myself. I'm angry with myself because I've blown it at home. It doesn't bother me. If I'm off somewhere else and I do something I ought not do, or Cliff, like you said in Sunday school, say something I ought not say and then regret it later. But when I say something at home in front of Heather and the home team, it just crushes me. Nothing like being defeated at home. 
So maybe what the Spirit of God's saying to us in 2021, hey, I want to fine-tune your faith. Let's work in that area where you're most comfortable and where you're most familiar with all of the elements and all the resources. Let's start right there in your home and let's fine-tune your faith so that you're not personally defeated in your own house. Well, notice what else Jesus was doing to fine-tune old Philip's faith. Number one, he did it by placing him in a seemingly impossible situation. Hey, that might be your situation this year. He may put you in a situation that looks absolutely impossible. It might be with your health. It may be with your finances. It may be with your family. And here's what you do to pass the test. You recognize that it is impossible for me, God, but nothing shall be impossible with you. We've paid attention in class. We know who you are. We see what you can do. And I'm going to stand right here and watch you do what you do. So he placed him in a seemingly impossible situation. Number two, he was fine-tuning Philip's faith by giving him an, an, an important role. An important role. Oh, he's still, man, he allowed Philip to participate in this thing. And that's what he does, you and I. He gives us a role in the kingdom of God. You are a vital player. You are on the roster. You're on the starting lineup. You have a role. And maybe he's wanting to fine-tune our faith and get us in our role this year. And notice the role that he gave Philip. You know, John's version of this says that um, uh, in verse number 10, Jesus said, have the people to sit down. And then verse 11, Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed. Now, there's no conflict here. I think he's just saying that Jesus kind of gave it to the disciples and the disciples as the synoptic gospel. It was not, Jesus didn't go through and personally serve every single person there. But he gave it to his disciples and they went and they did the serving. That was Philip's role. So here's what Warren Wearsby said about this one time. I'll never forget Warren Wearsby saying this. He said that Philip's role was to be a distributor, not a manufacturer. And you know what we do most of the time when God gives us something to do? We think that we got to manufacture the stuff. We think that we've got to fund, we think that we've got to bankroll God's purpose. And that's not true at all. God's never asked us to be a manufacturer of the resources. He just asked us to be a distributor of the resources. You see, it was Jesus who made it. And the guys just had the privilege and the role of distributing it and handing it out. And dear God, that's what we want Grace Church to be. God gives it to us and we want to be faithful in distributing it. And passing it out and putting it in places where it makes the greatest impact for His glory. So Philip had an important role. Hey, don't ever make the mistake of thinking that you've got to whip it up. That it's all on you. No, no, no. We don't, we don't produce the fruit. We just bear it. The Holy Spirit's the one who produces it in us. We just bear it. We're just distributors. We're not manufacturers. So Philip had an important role here. He was to be a distributor, not a manufacturer. He was, he was also a steward, not the owner. 
See what Jesus told them at the end? He said, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. Hey, they didn't belong to Philip, but Philip was to be a steward of them. And man, I'll tell you, I've seen so many churches where folk think they own the thing. And it's not ours. As a matter of fact, there's not one thing I have that's mine. It's his. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. I preach this to myself every day. That I'm a steward, not the owner. And whatever he says do with what, he, what, what is his, that's what I need to do with it. So Philip was a steward, not the owner. Check out number next. He was a student, not the professor. Man, it's amazing to me because from a professorial standpoint, nobody knows more than the incoming freshman. I'll be teaching most of the time the, over at the college. They put me just in upper level courses because they don't want to expose me to younger students. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, they don't want to give the wrong impression. They don't want to run them off their freshman year. So they wait till they're close to graduating and they say, all right, now y'all got to take Dr. Allen. But this year, I... I've got some 200, a 200 level class that I'm teaching and it, it always amazes me. It's always the freshmen and the sophomores that think they know more than the prof. And they're not ashamed to let you know that, that they're God's gift to ministry. And it's just a matter of time before I have your job. <laughs> it's funny, it don't bother me, I just, I just laugh. <laughs> but here old Philip had to learn he was a student. Jesus was the subject. Jesus was the professor. And old Philip had a lot to learn. And you know one of the things about an eternal God, and one of the reasons it's going to keep us in amazement throughout all eternity is we will never exhaust His nature as students. Morning by morning new mercies I see. So when we get to the point where we feel like we know it all, we are spiritually defeated, we are mentally detached. Something is wrong because we are not in the vicinity of an eternal God whom we will never exhaust the attributes of His nature. There's always something to be discovered about Him. Always something to be seen in the intricacies of His Word. Well, number next, Jesus was fine-tuning Philip's faith and by the way, fine-tuning ours as well by placing us in a seemingly impossible situation by giving us an important role in the kingdom, and then finally by showing us, by showing him, an impractical reality. Now, here's what I mean by an impractical reality. Follow me on this. Look at how many baskets were gathered up. So they gathered them up. You know what that means? It means those baskets weren't just set up there where Jesus had turned them miraculously into an abundant supply. They had already been distributed. So when they had to gather them up, the, the Synoptic Gospels tells us Jesus made them sit down in companies of 150. And by the way, you see that word up there when Jesus said, have the people sit down? The word behind that is literally, have the people recline. Do you know that in ancient days, we've even seen, seen depictions of it in the Lord's Supper. They didn't eat sitting down at a table like we do. They would recline back on, and they would stretch out like this. And they would recline leaning up on one arm. That's the way they ate. So that's what Jesus told them to do. He said, have the people recline. That was the posture for eating a meal. 
So what do you think people thought? He didn't just say sit down. I mean, it, it, it's not the word for sitting Indian style in the grass to listen to what I'm going to tell you. It's the word for sit down because you're about to eat. What you reckon people thought when he said, go ahead and assume the position. And then check out. He says, gather up these leftover fragments. So they had done distributed them to all those people who were out there reclining. Now after everybody's eating, the disciples are going through there picking up pieces of of bread and fish from all of that pasture in which they were sitting and they come up with 12 baskets of fragments. Now follow my thought on this. I grew up in South Mississippi and we were so close to Louisiana that a lot of my friends talk like Cajuns. They do. And one of them told me this one day. He said, you know how you can tell a true Cajun, Richie? I said, no, how's that? That a true Cajun can look at a 10-acre field of rice and he can tell you down to a cup how much gravy to take to cover it. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. Y'all can do that. But let me tell you about Jesus Christ. He can look at a crowd of ten or 15,000 men and women and children and he can tell you right down to the catfish filet how many it takes. You see what I'm getting at? You've seen it in your own life. Heather kept a journal when we were in seminary. Look here, we were poor. I mean, we were, we were hand to mouth. We were dependent upon God. And there were, I can't tell you how many times we would get a bill in the mail for something for $125, let's just say. We don't have $125. That week the power company would send us a refund check and said, we were reviewing your account and found that you have a balance of 100, and it was down to the penny of what we owed. And Heather, am I telling the truth? It's like we'd say, dear God, how did that happen? And the only way it happens is that the faithful God of heaven supplied our need down to the penny. You can go back and read Heather's journal that she wrote in 1993, 94, 95, when I was crying at Southwestern Seminary thinking we were going to die out there because we were in an impossible situation, didn't have any gravy to put on our rice. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And we'd have another bill come in because when we went to seminary, they used to say, you go to seminary, you're going to get one of two things, a new car, a new baby. Guess which one we got? <laughs> I don't know how that happened. I don't. To this day, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we would get a bill in the mail for the hospital. And I'm a monkey's uncle. If that week we'd go to the mailbox and somebody we ain't heard from in two years addressed a letter in there and we'd open it up and there'd be a card in it with a check and said, I don't know why God just placed me on your heart this week and it would be exactly what we needed. You know why? Because God has got a detail and precision. What am I saying to you? I'm saying to you that day when Jesus provided for, those, for that multitude, he probably provided the exact amount down to the roll and the filet of fish that he, that he produced. You know what else that tells me? Notice there's hints all through this story. Look, look, notice, notice what he said. I tried to highlight it for you in verse number 13. They gathered up and filled 12 baskets with fragments 
from the five barley loaves which were left over, get this, by those who had eaten. Underline that. You see, John points it out, by those who had eaten. You know what that tells me? That tells me that Jesus didn't miscalculate. He provided right down to the exact number. But there were some folk in that crowd that didn't eat. That's the only explanation. And get this. I think there were some there in that crowd that day who didn't eat because they were defiantly disobedient. You know what they would have said? They would have said, I ain't eating what a Jewish teacher gives me. I can provide for my own self. My house just around the corner. I'm just here to see him do some sign. I ain't here for a handout. I don't want him feeding me. I don't want, I don't want him to be able to say he's given me anything because I'm a self-made man. I provide for my own self. And I'll do it my own way. So there were some there that day who were defiantly disobedient. There are folk that way in every crowd. There are folk who say, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do, preacher. I'm just here because my mama, my daddy, my husband, my wife made me. And I might be sitting down listening to you, but I'm defiant on the inside. I ain't having nothing to do with this Jesus guy. They're in every crowd. So there were some who didn't eat because they were defiantly disobedient. I think there were others who didn't eat because they were deceptively disobedient. You see, they sat down, they reclined, they hid in the crowd, they were chameleons. Oh, they acted like they were eating. They would have faked some people off, but they were deceptive and they didn't eat. It's the only way to explain why some didn't eat and why there was so much left over. Because I'm telling you, God is a God of detail. And He could look at that crowd and know exactly. And so many folks say, oh, look at this beautiful lesson Jesus is teaching us. Hey, Jesus didn't make 12 extra baskets just to teach us to be good stewards. That's a secondary application. The primary application is this. What a dog shame when the Son of God provides for you and you turn your nose up and refuse to take it. Brother Richie, how can the Lord send anybody to hell? He has provided for you and you turn your nose up because you think you're good enough on your own. God's just going to weigh my good against my bad and I'm a better person than I am bad so He's going to let me in and that's a life in the pit of hell. The only way to get in is by the blood of Christ being born again. Ain't it a shame? Every time the Word of God's preached, it's just like that crowd that day on the side of that mountain. Jesus provided a meal. And every time the Word's preached, He provides the bread of life. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But you know what I'm afraid of? Sometime I think I ought to say, Dr. John, now that everybody's gone, get a basket and pick it up because nobody wanted it. Just left it on the ground. Hey, in 2020, this ought to be our goal. Just like the writer of Joshua says, they let no words fall to the ground. Hey, if you let it fall to the ground, 10-second rule applies. 
It ain't been there so long it's dirty. Pick it up and eat it. God's going to fine-tune our faith this year by saying, whatever it is that I say, will you do it? Will you pick it up? Will you make it a part of who you are so that I can make you who I want you to be? So instead of just limping through hitting the broad side of the barn, you can shoot out a gnat's eyeball at 150 yards. May God fine-tune our faith in 2021. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank